You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Howdy, everybody. CJ here, and welcome to episode, I believe it's 237 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this episode, I'm going to be having a conversation with Matt Alford and Tom Secker, who are two of the main researchers and two of the producers of the 2022 documentary film Theaters of War. Now, those of you who've listened to my podcast for a while are probably familiar with Tom and his work over at spyculture.com, where he focuses on researching and exposing the degree to which U.S. government institutions like the Defense Department and the CIA and so forth have penetrated and continue to influence and even exert direct control in some cases on major TV and movie productions. And you may remember I had him on this podcast several years ago to discuss the book that he co-authored with our other guest today, Matt Alford, which was called National Security Cinema. Well, Tom and Matt have continued their research. They've uncovered all sorts of new things beyond just all the stuff that they exposed in National Security Cinema, and they were able to work with some other great folks to put together this documentary film, which I highly recommend. Even if you've read National Security Cinema, this is worth watching because, like I said, they've uncovered a whole bunch of stuff uh, that they didn't have access to in the years since they published National Security Cinema. And furthermore, a lot of people are going to, you know, respond better to a film than to reading a book, let's just be honest. And they really got some pretty cool stuff in the film, including Roger Stahl, the narrator, and I believe the executive producer of the film, even had a chance to speak with Oliver Stone a little bit, which is cool. So anyway, I highly recommend the film, and I hope you enjoy our discussion here. And then one other thing that I'll mention before we switch over to the conversation is that as I'm recording this intro, yesterday, around noonish, my Indiegogo campaign to liberate me from my day job busted through 100% funded, and... As of this recording, I am 105% funded. So I'm actually a little bit above $12,600 with five days still left to go on the campaign. And yes, I do get, you know, minus Indiegogo's uh, fees, which are, you know, pretty small, actually. I do get whatever else is raised uh, beyond the 12000 goal. So please feel free. The campaign has five days left. And I think I also have the option to extend it a few more days uh, beyond the original the original deadline if I wish, and I probably will just because I could use every penny I could get. I'm really, um, you know, taking a leap of faith here in a lot of ways. So I would urge you, if you haven't yet contributed and, you know, have been considering doing so, please do so. Um, this is, you know, still a terrifying thing for me. Uh, yesterday afternoon, I, I submitted uh, via email a resignation notice at the college that I've worked at for 15 years. And so this is a very... Um, a uh, complicated emotional time for me right now, where on the one hand, um, I'm relieved uh, to be leaving a job that I was increasingly uh, disillusioned with, to, to put it mildly. 
and to be starting new projects and expanding, you know, projects I've already been doing for a while, like the Dangerous History podcast itself. And so, you know, I've got this relief and exhilaration, but also this, uh, this fear of, you know, leaving uh, a steady paycheck I've been at for 15 years and the benefits of that probably are the most scary thing to be giving up. So please, uh, if you're willing and able, continue to chip in to the Indiegogo. And also, you know, you get the perks there as well. Um, in addition to that, I would just say now more than ever, uh, please consider signing up to support the show on a regular basis via places like Patreon and Subscribestar. Uh, you can also, if you just want to send in a direct PayPal donation, you can do that. Go to profcj.org slash donate. And in addition to that, I do have a Bitcoin address on there um, if you want to contribute via Bitcoin. So I really could use all the help and support I could get right now uh, in these coming months as I make the transition to being full-time self-employed and self-directed. All right, so here we go. Here's my conversation with Matt Alford and Tom Secker, both talking with me on the Zoom all the way from the UK. So hope you enjoy. guys thanks for coming on the show today that's our pleasure hello howdy okay so um i've had tom on my show a few years back when uh, national security cinema came out or not long after it came out i think and uh matt you were uh tom's co-author on that book right yes okay cool so um i know a bit about tom's background but i'm curious matt um you're actually like in academia, right? What, what's your sort of background and how did you get into this sort of, this sort of work? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I did a PhD which applied Noam Chomsky's propaganda model to Hollywood cinema. Um, and then following that, uh, yeah, I published a book and numerous uh, academic articles and journals uh, and then kind of came to the end of, uh, of the sort of run on that. I'd, I'd done uh, degrees in history and politics and film and television and uh, and then I did this kind of theoretical application of of Chomsky's anarchist ideas uh, and then I got to around about something like 2013 and was a bit like kind of don't really want to do any of this anymore I feel like I've said everything I want to say but then I met Tom um, and we decided to do all these Freedom of Information Act requests uh, and found uh, an enormous amount of uh, of documentation that had previously been really quite well hidden by the uh, Department of Defense and CIA. And then Tom found out even more from the FBI and um, uh, NSA and various police departments, all pointing to, uh, to, to various fairly covert levels of, of state control uh, and militarized and securitized state control uh, over the entertainment industry. So that kind of gave my uh, <laughs> research career, sort of academic career, a kind of second um, 
a, a, a second breath of air, really. A uh, breath of wind. That sounds a bit gross, doesn't it? A breath of air. You know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and that's so we've carried on doing that since me and Tom, um, obviously Tom leading on the Freedom of Information Act uh, request side of things. Uh, and then it's led to um, it's led to the creation of this documentary, um, uh, which has been uh, executive produced and led by uh, another brilliant researcher, Roger Stahl, um, in the States, uh, sort of doing a, uh, a sort of road trip around America, um, uh, tying down further th- uh, these, docu- these documents, but then also interviewing um, army veterans uh, uh, and things like that about the uh, about the kind of consequences of all this, and uh, and then putting it into a into a very entertaining film. Um, so that's kind of where I'm up to is being a uh, a co producer on on this documentary with with Tom and Roger, and very very proud of the work. Yeah, yeah. Well, the documentary is really good. Um, I actually watched it with my uh, younger child, who is. Um, very, very interested in, in movie and television production and, uh, is actually, you know, through school doing things like set design and whatever. And so is, is very interesting, very interested in media. Um, and I've talked to her a little bit about, you know, the, the ways in which the stuff we're going to be talking about today, the stuff the documentary digs into. Um, so I, I can say not only, uh, did the documentary, uh, interest me very much, but, um, you know, even my 13 year old kid, uh, found it really, really interesting. By the way, uh, Matt, your your PhD uh, dissertation sounds very interesting. Um, Chomsky's propaganda model apply, applied to film. Um, I'm actually in the middle of rereading for the first time uh, in in a bunch of years since I last read it. Uh, manufacturing consent, and yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. Uh, you know, obviously, a lot of the specifics of what he talks about there is very dated because the book was w- written. 30 some odd years ago, but man, so much of like the big picture points um, in that book are, you know, just as valid today, if not more so, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, there's been an increased concentration of media ownership um, uh, that particularly happened in the 1990s um, after the book was published in 1998, which, uh, which, which did sort of um, uh, enhance the applicability of the propaganda model to understanding the media. Although there's something really interesting. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I won't get off too too far into the Chomsky things uh, right now because I imagine you want to talk about other things. But uh, but it's quite interesting. I was speaking to uh, some students uh, just a few weeks ago, um, and I think because of the rise of um, things like Netflix um and the ability to uh, acquire any piece of information at any time i think that among among young people and this is not to have a go at young people but it's just i think there's an ignorance of the um uh, of the actual uh, importance of that uh, uh of that way of looking at the media because the idea now is that everything's so decentralized you can find anything on the internet Every, everyone's making their own content. Even I'm on TikTok, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but so so you know, how can there even be a mainstream? How can there be a mainstream media? And so, it's very easy for people to not think that there is because they, with a uh, you know, a touch of a button, they can they can do whatever they like and find whatever they like. But the thing is that what they don't get, because it's quite a hard idea to get into your head, is that there is nevertheless still a mainstream. 
um, and that all of these companies are, you know, these corporate entities which are very much tied to to state interests and often to military interests and so on. And so that means that uh, that there is a there is a mainstream. There just there, there simply is a mainstream. It's just it's it's not as easy to see as it was, say in. Um, 1995, when Rupert Murdoch was taking over a bunch of satellite channels, and the Telecommunications Act was allowing for the monopolisation of everything under Clinton, and you know it was more it was more uh, obvious then, uh, but but less so now. But it's it's still the same phenomenon, if not worse. Yeah, uh, Tom. Anything you want to add in terms of like uh, how this this project came together? Um, you know how your your prior work. Uh, kind of led you to to be involved with making this documentary? Well, I mean, I guess the simple story is essentially the one that Matt just told. I mean, we wrote the book. It came out a little, just over five years ago now. That five years has gone very quickly. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, in some ways slowly, but in other ways very quickly. Um, and I can't remember exactly when it was, maybe eight, ten months after we published the book. Uh, Roger approached us. And at that point, the idea was maybe to do kind of just a, a documentary version of national security cinema. But in the three, maybe three and a half years we spent actually developing and producing this thing and poor Roger doing so many different edits of this documentary in response to Matt and my sort of endless notes and suggestions and requests and so on. Um, it became a very different film. Um, and I think... I mean, this hasn't just been the process of making a documentary. We've all learned an enormous amount in the course of making it. You know, there's so much more documentation available. There's so many more, like, big and broad themes coming out of this, if you know what I mean. Things that we had an inkling of before, uh, say, about sex crimes in the military, mental health in the military, themes like that, that you wouldn't necessarily think this is something the Pentagon has a, like, really big influence on in both film and tv you wouldn't have thought these issues were that high up on their agenda but they are um and so we can map things like uh, the pentagon's influence on the depiction of nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons policy we can map that basically from world war ii to the present now because of all this additional information that we have and then trying to condense that down into a documentary format was you know, at times a bit difficult. Um, there is a lot of stuff that left that ended up on the cutting room floor. There's a lot of stuff we just had to leave out. But that's that is what it is. Um, Any possibility so yeah, yeah. of like a um, you know special edition with deleted scenes or a director's cut or something um, to include some of the stuff that didn't make it in the final cut? Well, I do have all of those original cuts somewhere on my hard drive. So, I mean, if if people want to see uh, like two hour maybe two and a half hour version of this that isn't particularly well polished and things, then I guess they can email me and maybe we can sort something out. Um, I mean, no, at this point, we're not really thinking in those terms. We're thinking like, how can we get this wider distribution? Um, that's what we're really focused on right now is how can we get this out to as many people as possible? Because so far it's been doing very well on Canopy, which is the like educational streaming service, I guess. Um, so there's clearly interest in it. There's clearly a market for it. And so we're just trying to figure out, you know, uh, in terms of film festivals, in terms of trying to get in contact with distributors, or at least getting MEF to get in contact with distributors and all that kind of thing. We're not really thinking about additional. I don't want to go back to Roger and say, let's recut the movie again. <laughs> 
Gotcha. I, I was just curious, you know, because when I watched the film, I was like, oh, that, that was great. But there must have been all kinds of other cool stuff that just didn't make it because of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for 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 uh, dorks like me who, who are really into this stuff. So let's uh, let's take a step back and sort of um, zoom the lens out. And, uh, you know, wh- whichever of, of you two wants to, um, you know, take a stab at this, basically to someone who has little to no familiarity uh, with all the stuff that you guys have researched, how would you describe what these entertainment liaison offices are and kind of what they do and like what sort of, as the film puts it, what's the deal? Uh, that they offer to people who are involved in producing movies and television shows. Matt, do you want to run at that one or should I? Uh, happy to, as you've, as you've asked. Um, I would put it like this, uh, or at least this is the point that we're trying to, trying to get across. We think it's a really unhealthy and, and really quite insidious and deep-rooted problem within American society, because although these are basically just PR, PR organisations, they are PR organizations within some of the most dangerous, um, uh, volatile, uh, um, violent organizations that have ever existed on the planet, namely the uh, American military. And that's not to make a, 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 a dig at American, military, uh, American servicemen, nor, at, uh, nor to say that the, the American arm, Army, Navy, Navy and Air Force is uh, more unethical than any other previous um, violent organization um, going back uh, millennia. But nevertheless, it is an organization which has the most tremendous weapons at its disposal and has shown over a period of uh, decades and indeed centuries the, the capacity and willingness to use those weapons. That doesn't mean that those organizations and the CIA are uniquely bad or anything like that. But it does mean that there's an awesome responsibility for those organizations to conduct themselves um, uh, appropriately. And I think uh, the majority of people around the world would consider the way that the American military machine has conducted itself um, for a long period of time to not be appropriate. Um, and now these PR organizations um, within, those, uh, within, within those entities are spinning the image. Um, extremely effectively uh, on many thousands of Hollywood film scripts and TV um, computer games and uh, and meaning that the entire representation of American securitized and militarized power um, has been scrubbed of anything controversial uh, and indeed is very actively promoting um, talking points that um, that are designed to sell weapons to to showcase new military hardware uh, and this has been done pretty sec- as secretly as any company operates um so we think that that's a, a a really dangerous thing to do in the same way as it would be a very dangerous thing to do if there were a comparable um propaganda outlet um based in moscow that had that sort of uh, impact over the russian military um but all the more dangerous because the United States is so much more powerful than any other nation. Do you want me to take a run at that as well? Yeah, if you have any, any, anything to add, for sure. Well, from a different angle, at its simplest, it's about access in exchange for control over content. 
that these film and TV producers, video game producers, whatever else, they need access to stuff, whether that's people, locations, equipment, just information and knowledge a lot of the time uh, in order to make their products more compelling and more engaging and seem more realistic or at least uh, build a plausible world that people can easily fall into for the purposes of entertainment. So they need that access. And what they give up in control uh, in exchange for that access is control over their content. It's control over what they can and cannot say. And I mean, it's everything from little lines of dialogue that accidentally reference a horrible Vietnam War era chemical weapons program in a Hulk movie, all the way through to the overall story and character arcs in The Last Ship, that Michael Bay, very popular uh, cable TV show produced by Michael Bay. You know, it, it, it's everything from the micro to the macro. And so as a result, it's everything that Matt just said. It's that you have these very violent, very dangerous organizations with a pretty horrific track record of doing brutally horrible things. Certainly not the only ones in the world doing them, but whatever. They're the only ones that have this kind of influence yeah. over a product like Hollywood which not only shapes what people think, the kinds of opinions or ideologies they might subscribe to and things like that, but it shapes how they feel. You know, Hollywood is giving us all of these little emotional trigger points, all of this shaping of our entire psychological way of life. And that's far more powerful than any news broadcast could be or any magazine articles or anything like that, anything in the information realm. This is about something deeper. This is about how people feel. And Hollywood tells us how to feel. And skulking in the background, the CIA, the FBI, Homeland Security, LAPD, and all the rest of them are telling us how to feel about them. At its simplest, that's what this is. What do these entertainment liaison offices claim are their primary purposes versus what are their apparent real uh, purposes kind of based on what their behavior uh, and the empirical evidence that you guys have uncovered, you know, because this is something I, I see so often, uh, not just in regard to the military and intelligence and law enforcement agencies uh, of the government, but even, you know, things like what's the Federal Reserve really for, right? What's the Department of Agriculture really for? Um, it seems that inevitably there's this regulatory capture phenomenon going on with these sorts of things when you're talking about regulatory agencies anyway. And, you know, you've got the, the stated public purpose of what these things are supposed to be doing. And then you've got what they're actually doing, what they're actually for, whose interests they're actually serving. So in, in, in terms of specifics, like what specific things, if you went, you know, and asked uh, Phil Strub or his, his replacements or whatever, you know, what their office is supposed to be doing and, and what they see their mission as versus what the the documentation, the actual evidence reveals they're really up to. Well, can I take the CIA as the example rather than the military? Sure. Okay, so the CIA pretend that they're a national security agency. They're actually a cross between a secret society and a criminal syndicate. So that's, um, that's what their entertainment liaison office is doing, is maintaining that deception. And so either they're um, denying 
that the CIA does bad things. So you have the films that are very positive depictions of the CIA, like Mission Impossible, for example. You know, no one dies in Mission Impossible films. No one gets tortured. No one gets, no governments get overthrown. No people's deepest, darkest secrets get spread online in order to blackmail them out of revealing something about the CIA, so on and so forth. You don't get to see these things in those sorts of movies. But they also support movies like The Good Shepherd would be a good example, which show the dark side of the CIA, but help normalize it. They help justify it. They help tell us that, oh, yeah, the CIA does do these things. They will, on occasion, throw a dissident out of a helicopter, but they're doing it for the sake of our safety because it's a complex, horrible, hostile, dangerous world out there. And you, you know, like Jack Nicholson says, you want someone on that wall. You need someone on that wall. So aren't you glad, in fact, that there are some evil sociopaths called the CIA who are protecting us from the horrors of the Chinese or the Russians or the terrorists or the whoever, Venezuelans, take your pick, really. Um, and But what they say in public about what their entertainment liaison office does is much more benign and almost mundane. They just sort of say, oh, it's about ensuring accuracy. It's about ensuring that people understand what the CIA is, is really here for. And that, you know, we, we just want people to sort of get what we're all about. We just, we, we, we want people to, to, to feel like we're sort of part of American society and so on. And it's like, well, yeah, on the face of it, actually, that is sort of what they're doing. But because they're lying about what the CIA is, because the CIA in general lies about what it is, that's reflected and projected onto the world at large via Hollywood. And let me give you an example. They supported the film The Courier uh, a year ago, two years ago now, this Benedict Cumberbatch movie, which is all about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Penkovsky Papers, the whole Penkovsky spy situation. <laughs> now, that film opens with a speech by Khrushchev that culminates in where he's talking about the, the impressive Soviet nuclear arsenal, and he ends the speech with this line, we will bury you. He never said that. In as much as he said that line, it was actually <laughs> at a meeting at an embassy between a bunch of diplomats where he was talking about the historic rivalry between the Soviet socialist system and the Western capitalist system and was basically saying, we will win. The socialist system will, you know, in the annals of history, will win. He wasn't talking about nuclear weapons. So they've ripped that line completely out of context, slapped it into this movie, and the CIA have said, thank you very much. And then at the end of the movie... <laughs> they deviate completely from historical reality in that they depict the CIA and MI6 trying to basically rescue Oleg Penkovsky from the Soviet Union. That never happened. It plain and simply never happened. It wasn't even planned. It wasn't even suggested. It wasn't even considered. So they managed to turn the Cuban Missile Crisis, something provoked by the CIA at the Bay of Pigs and with Operation Northwoods and all of that, they provoked the Cuban Missile Crisis. They managed to make it seem like, oh, no, it was some horrendous, dastardly plot by those evil Russians, and we're the ones rescuing people. It's a complete inversion of reality. I'm ranting. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was a rant. <laughs> it was very good. Okay, so they, they make these claims, and, and I thought the film does a really good job of you know pointing this out in various ways, that... They make these claims that, as you said, they sound very mundane. They sound, you know, who could really object to it? Where they, they basically say, oh, no, 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 we're just about authenticity, right? Like the only thing the Pentagon cares about when they're deciding whether or not to offer support uh, to a big studio film is like, you know, are the uniforms correct? 
uh, is the, you know, insignia right in the background or what, like, that's all they really care about when in reality, they've got all these other, um, you know, propaganda purposes going on. But yeah, and to be clear, like, uh, I mean, it is in their official documentation as well. This isn't just us overreading into what we think their intentions are. If you go down uh, and all the documentation is out on TomSpyCulture.com uh, uh, website and it's in, in the documentary, you know, they do say it's just they bury it in the small print. So it's things like, you know, uh, uh, that the nar- that the narratives in these productions will not go against the interests of the US government. And, you know, very obvious things like that. So. You can pick through. It's just that they're not they're not inclined to say that sort of thing in interviews. It's like Phil Strub when he was asked, you know, because uh, he was, con- you know, asked a question about uh, how powerful he was in uh, in uh, in the industry, uh, and he said something like that he was uh, like a uh, he, he was like a eunuch in the court of imperial China. Now that's a, a very clear way of him trying to. Um, uh, make it seem as though his role was very marginal, um, and maybe it's just that he's really modest as a person. <laughs> maybe modesty is his uh, is his watchword. But more likely, and certainly the 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 effect of it um, is that you know that he he's you know he he probably is you know one of the most powerful people or was until he uh recently retired but probably was one of the most uh influential uh figures on any hollywood script you know up there with the uh, with the sumner redstones and the rupert murdochs and uh and all of those people like a kind of executive producer on uh on hundreds of different productions in his uh during his tenure so it, so those kind of things are indicators, of, but but including in the official documentation and in the contracts, of course, that all of these um, that all of these uh, film producers have to sign uh, as part of their uh, ag- agreements with the with the Pentagon. Uh, it, it's ultimately is it's all um, it's all uh, uh, done with uh, with, with uh, legal oversight with lawyers involved. Um, so it, it, it's not like this is just some you know, a sort of a, a dusty old broom cupboard where uh, where they, you know, where they dole up, you know, they have an old guy in there who knows which way the ribbons go around on a um, uh, on a military uniform. Um, that's how it kind of could be. That's probably how it should be. That's probably what the Pentagon's office should be. It's just a couple of old vets who are like, yeah, this is what this is what the kind of language we use. But it's not. It's, a, it's an extensive, uh, very slick, very 21st century uh, PR machine. Uh, which is also very enthusiastic about the uh, and and able to operate um, well outside what you'd normally expect uh, uh, an organisation to be able to do. You know, they're not they're not they're not selling breakfast cereal. They they can get into everything, and they and they can provide um, huge huge items that are simply not available elsewhere, including things like helicopter gunships and uh, um, and aircraft carriers and things like that. So. The amount of pull that they can have is is uh, is absolutely tremendous. Yeah, I I, I think it, I, I really think that I mean, like like I said, when I got to two thousand and thirteen ish, I was I was basically ready to to quit this. But I just thought it's incredible that the 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 size and scale and level of secrecy just meant that I felt I I had to keep on going with uh, w- with the project um, to uh, to unveil that. Yeah, that's sort of how I that's my how I feel about it. And that's how I feel about the scale and severity of it. 
Yeah. You know what I thought, what I thought of um, listening uh, to what you guys just said is basically it sounds like these uh, ELOs are doing the old Kaiser Serze move, right? The, yes. The best, yes. the best trick is convincing the world uh, that the devil ever did is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Right. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. I'm just this like humble little guy in a, in a, you know, forgotten corner of the Pentagon and, you know, no one really listens to me. And well, yeah. as, as, as Roger describes it at the start of the, uh, of our documentary, um, that it, it seemed like a, uh, 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 you know, kind of put, it, make, it makes it almost look like a, a broom cupboard, a kind of dusty old room. And then he opens up the door. But Roger's, Roger's done really quite brilliant um, animated work in the uh, in the film. I never realised he had that talent. But um, and then he kind of opens up the door, and you see everything kind of come out of it, almost like a scene from Ghostbusters or something. <laughs> well, and in terms of the scale of it especially to jump on the back of that thing that Strub said about being a eunuch, which is a line that has always made me laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, we compare him to a major Hollywood producer, um, Strub was in that job for about 30 years, about 1988 to 2018 or so. And during that time, he worked on at least six of the top 10 movie franchises in the world. Mm. At Jurassic least. Park. <laughs> what, 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 can you remember what they were? Jurassic Park. Um, um, well, it's things like uh, James Marvel. Bond, Fast and Furious, the Marvel yeah. Universe, the DC Universe. I'm sure if you go down the list on Wikipedia, uh, Transformers is another one. Mm. Um, but, um, it's in the top ten. You know, these are the films. Terminator. Watched, you know, yeah, Terminator. I mean, if you go down, if you keep going down, it's like it's six or seven of the top ten. It's thirteen or fourteen of the top twenty. If you keep going down, it's just like the top fifty movie franchises more than half of them will have been through some form of the Pentagon's filtering mechanism. And pretty much all of that happened while Strub was in office. What Mm. movie producer can say that? What movie Mm. producer can say, I've influenced, you know, 30 of the top 50 movie franchises in the world. I've reviewed their scripts. I've told them what they can and can't put in there. Who has that kind of influence in Hollywood? The answer is no one, actually. I haven't come across anyone any producer, any director, even the, you know, even like a Christopher Nolan, you know, complete A-grade movie producer, writer, director, he doesn't influence that many products. He only really has influence over his own. Even someone like Spielberg, who's been an executive producer on dozens and dozens and dozens of films, even he hasn't reached that level of influence. So, um, yeah, Strub's simply lying about that, or as Matt said, is being pathologically modest. People can make up their own <laughs> can minds. Can you be pathologically modest? <laughs> <laughs> great if you could i mean it's, uh, i mean i might be but it's it's not for me to say <laughs> <laughs> you might think so i couldn't possibly comment yeah, yeah. very nice <laughs> yeah well well to me aside from all the the documentation you guys have uncovered you know the things in contracts and the internal documents and whatever where they admit what they're really up to in large part um there's also the the difference between you know, what they will say publicly uh, to the media or whatever about what they do. Um, and then what you can actually see just from the, the evidence of which films, because the most, the single most powerful thing they have is the decision over which films to support and which films not to support. Like that's, that's the root of almost all their, their power over the industry. And if, you know, the, the kind of, um, uh, exoteric face of what they do is, oh, we just care about authenticity and accuracy, right? Well, then you got a real problem, though, because they 
obviously have supported and continue to support all kinds of movies um, that have all kinds of, you know, inaccuracies and not authentic things. As um, I think Tom was already talking about before, like they'll completely just falsify actual historical uh, films, you know, didn't make them be the opposite of what, what really happened. Uh, so there's that. Then there's all the, the just ludicrous over the top. The fact that they get involved with all these, um, you know, superhero movies or wild sci-fi movies, the Terminator movies, all these different things. Like, really, that's that reflects you trying to make sure things are accurate and authentic is like, how would the Pentagon fight Godzilla? Um, and then there's also the other issue that the film brings up, which, you know, I had I had known about from, uh, you know, reading your guys previous work and whatever, but I think the film really does a good job of uh, digging into it, which is how often it is that the DOD will deny uh, support to movies that are written, directed or both by actual veterans and you know, even even though if you get a, a bunch of independent veterans to go watch these movies, they'll say like, oh, yeah, that was actually one of the most accurate, you know, war movies I ever saw. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they're if their main yardstick as as to deciding what to support and what not uh, to support is just, you know, accuracy and authenticity, you would think they'd be supporting veterans uh, written and produced movies more than anything else. Well, sure. Why are they rejecting Fields of Fire, which never got made? Platoon? written by a veteran, directed by a veteran, born on the 4th of July, written by a veteran, directed by a veteran, uh, Jarhead, based on a book by a veteran, written by another veteran. All of these were rejected because in some way they did not portray military life in a feasible fashion or some stupid line like that. Well, what does feasible mean in that context anyway? It's just one of those words they're using as a placeholder for saying we don't like this thing, so no. But they'll support Transformers 5, a movie about artificially intelligent giant extraterrestrial robots invading Earth. Um, they'll support Godzilla. They'll support Jurassic Park movies. Well, none of those are any, <laughs> by any metric, are more feasible or realistic or accurate depictions of the military because none of those events happened. Whereas the events in all of those films written by veterans either happened or are fictionalized, dramatized versions of things that actually happened that were actually seen by the people who wrote those movies. So I think that they could actually legitimately say that there is a difference between supporting something that which is out and out um, fantasy, science fiction, fantasy, um, and providing some support on that for the, you know, for, for whatever reason. Um, and them, uh, and, and them, being obliged to support uh, uh, films that are taking a particular, uh, having a particular take on history that, that they disagree with, I can see why why there might be a distinction on that. Like I'm not too harsh on them for um, for supporting Transformers or or Godzilla in the in the sense that I don't think it's inappropriate for a neutral, non propagandizing government organization to say, yeah, we we will, yeah, we're perfectly happy to. Uh, to lend our advice to a film about monsters. I don't think there's anything necessarily that wrong about that. It's just that the way that they do it, I think, is just is the thoroughly inappropriate. I mean, look, with a good example being that one of, uh, uh, of Godzilla, um, where they denuclearize the whole script um, because they don't even want to even allude to the bombing of Hiroshima, which was 70, can't even work out the maths of it, years ago. 
<laughs> you know, so they they rewrite the the lines that are anything to do with Hiroshima. But, um, so it's like they, you can't have your cake and eat it um, on, with their uh, with their approach. I think it's completely wrong because because you you, you, you can't say that um, you know either these things are just fictional and so so what um, and and any and anything can go in the script uh, or they're uh, or they are serious and. Uh, do you see what I mean? I've explained that badly. No, no, I know what you're saying. I'm, tr- I'm trying, to pa- trying to pace around like Sherlock Holmes so I can be, so I can keep my mind clear. But actually, my cat keeps nipping at my ankles and the clothes dryer is on. So it's uh, completely ruining my, my flow. <laughs> <laughs> You've lost your mojo. <laughs> yeah, I've lost my mojo. I'm trying to hide from the animal and the machine. <laughs> well, an- another thing that the the film brings up when it's talking about, you know, the actual kind of nuts and bolts of the research that you guys have done. Um, and I know this was something that, you know, limited what you had access to for writing national security cinema versus what you had access to uh, leading up to this film. Tell us a bit about the story of this guy, Lawrence Seward, because that is just such a bizarre, strange tale okay um well actually we've we've found more information on him since the film was completed but at any rate larry seward um was perhaps the academic writing about this the historian writing about the whole military hollywood relationship for the better part of half a century um he was pretty much the only source that anyone went to. He was the only person considered especially credible. He was the only one really writing about it in any depth or beyond the odd newspaper or magazine article here or there. Um, And then David Robb came along, this investigative journalist, and he managed through a variety of methods to actually see quite a lot of the paper trail that Seward had been working on all these years. And now this is documents that had come almost exclusively from the military themselves. When Roger finally got into Seward's archive, we'll get into the archives in a second, um, he discovered things like, essentially Seward was just writing to either Phil Strub or Don Baruch, whoever was head of the Pentagon office at the time, and saying, oh, can I get the files on this? Do you have any paper trail on that? Oh, you know, whatever. There was a whole bunch of stuff that the Pentagon was apparently just going to throw out. Uh, they weren't even going to send it over to the National Archives. They were just going to, you know, junk it, chuck it in the shredder, whatever, um, that Seward also rescued. And this paper trail formed the basis of his books and also formed the basis of his archives at Georgetown University. Now, in the early 2000s, David Robb managed to get into at least one of those archives, and I think both of them. Now we've been able to reconstruct a lot of this. There's a lot of stuff in Robb's book that clearly came from the second, more private archive that essentially was just Seward's private, you know, his own curated collection that only people could get into with his permission and so rob writes uh, operation hollywood which busts massive holes in everything seward was saying because seward had been presenting this much like the pentagon had present presented this oh this is just about accuracy this is just about technical details and dialogue and people being the right rank and basically that the military is there to fix hollywood's mistakes because hollywood's full of dumbasses who don't know anything about the military even they're though, all liberals, they're all left wing, they're all anti-government, they're all anti-military, supposedly. But that's a bit of a myth in itself. That's a complete myth in itself. If you follow the US Marine Corps Entertainment Liaison Office on Instagram, they are constantly posting about famous movie stars who are military veterans. 
constantly. Virtually every post, it's like, oh, this movie came out, you know, 30 years ago today. The director was a military veteran. The lead actor was military, blah, 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 blah. So clearly that isn't even true anyway. But Seward very much played into that narrative of, oh, Hollywood's a bunch of, you know, liberal idiots who don't get the military. And Rob came along and said, no, this is a sophisticated propaganda operation. This is probably unconstitutional in various ways. And there is a whole bunch of stuff here about some of the most important themes and questions around the military that Seward has essentially just ignored. (laughs) And this causes a massive falling out in the pages of an academic journal between the two of them. And then Rob, it seems, moved on to other things. And I don't think Seward really published that much after that. I think um, his second book, his other book came out in 2005, I think it was. But after that, he basically didn't publish anything for years. But during that time, people like, well, Matt being one of them, me being another, Trisha Jenkins, a, a you know, handful of other people made contact with Seward saying, well, okay, since you're not publishing on this anymore, can we take a look at the papers in your archive? After all, they are government papers. They're not like your private personal correspondence or anything. And he'd always say, no, I think he didn't want anyone doing another David Robb. I think he didn't want anyone yeah. else either firstly undermining his reputation and his credibility yeah. and his I mean, I say credibility and integrity, he had none, but he had the appearance of those things. But he also didn't want people actually getting a good look at what this propaganda operation was up to. And so he acted as a gatekeeper to this information. We knew that much. Um, We made some references to this in National Security Cinema. What we've discovered since then is that, firstly, this relationship between Seward and the DOD went back probably even longer than we thought it did. Secondly, that it was even closer than we previously realized, in as much as he was actually sharing parts of the transcript with Strub and Baruch, and they were giving him notes on it and making suggestions and saying, no, we'd rather you framed it in this way rather than that way, all of this kind of stuff. <laughs> and actually, since the film came out, one of the other discoveries we've made is that Seward actually helped put together the DOD's Hollywood database this database of maybe eight, 900 productions, mostly ones that they worked on, but it also lists a bunch of rejections and other things. Um, he actually helped put that together under contract from Strub's office. That's how close he was. And so we have to see Seward's books not as independent academic commentaries by a historian, but as PR efforts for that PR office itself. Yeah, he and, was so and, pay, close. and paid for as well, at least uh, uh, in, in at least indirectly, he was paid by those organisations. Well, some of the time he was working under contract to them, um, yeah. and he was also recommended for like fellowships and you know money from various foundations, that sort of thing, to help him finish this project or continue with this project. Those recommendations were made by people within the Pentagon. So we have to see his books and the internal paper trail of the Pentagon not as separate things, you know? They are, to some extent, one and the same project. That the Pentagon has been selling us this PR myth about what they're actually doing here, PR for their own PR operations, on the one hand, and Seward has been backing that up, seemingly as an outsider, seemingly as an independent for decades, in order to continue, you know, make that more plausible. And the whole thing's a lie, and the whole thing's a sham. And what we've now found through, I mean, both Matt and Roger have made visits to those, that Georgetown library, to try and get a handle on, 
you know, what's actually there. What the hell's going on with all of this? Um, now Seward's dead. I'm not going to say fortunately. Ah, fuck it. Fortunately, Seward is now dead. So people can actually get in there. They can actually look at those papers. And Roger has been in and made copies of a whole bunch of stuff, which otherwise would probably have never seen the light of day. Because it's not like anyone knew about any of this besides people like me and Matt and Roger and a handful of other people who've like obsessed over this. So a whole a whole bunch of things are now possible to prove not just about what the Pentagon has been doing in Hollywood all these years, but how they've been shaping their own narrative about what they've been doing in Hollywood all these years. And Seward has played an absolutely critical role in all of that. Yeah, and if I was to uh, if think back to the, to the nature of um, academic study into this as well, into the nature of research into this whole field, I mean, Seward's been dominating, uh, I mean, film studies as a discipline, as something that is in thousands of universities, or at least hundreds, yeah, thousands of universities around the world. You know, the, the fact is that that, Film studies has never really been very well um, integrated with politics and propaganda. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is because there hasn't been very much data on it. Um, there's not been very much empirical information about it. Uh, and where, that, where there are courses that are taught on film and propaganda, it's all going back to the Nazis and the Soviets and blah, blah, blah. Um, but but Seward, the, the importance of Seward as a gatekeeper um, within that academic field has probably affected the nature um, of the of the discipline itself of film studies of media studies and so on and that, that's why I think that the, the work that we've got involved in is is really important and, and I, I hope I'm not saying that through any sort of uh, sort of blindsidedness of myself I, th- I just think inherently it's it, it is really important like because it, it does involve the control. Um, uh, it, it's it's new information about the whole way that the media scape is dominated and controlled, and you can't get more fundamental than that. Yeah, well, let me say that as somebody who you know personally had no involvement in making this film or anything like that, so hopefully uh, that, that means I'm, I'm at least somewhat objective. Uh, I actually agree that this is really really important uh, stuff, and just to kind of give give my perspective of why ever since I started to come across uh your guys's work I've I've been like wow this is actually one of the most important um kind of research projects into into recent uh, events and and uh shady government deeds um going right now and I I've never been in the military um I came pretty close to joining back when I was wrapping up high school, I come from a family with a lot of military people in it. But for the last 15 years, um, I've been teaching history at a community college uh, in, you know, fairly small town, North Florida, in what used to be until recently, very fertile recruiting grounds for the U.S. military. And as a guy teaching college history, I lost track of how many veterans I had come through my classes, you know, on GI Bill money and whatever. You know, especially during the the heyday of the war on terror uh, wars and everything like that, and it it kind of it bothered me personally. Um, I have a very you know anti war anti imperialist perspective on all these things, and one thing that I found was very interesting was all the many veterans coming through my class. The overwhelming majority of them were sympathetic mm. to my perspective on these wars and what they're really all about. 
And it was only a, a very small minority of, of veterans who had actually seen combat who were like, you know, still drinking the imperial uh, Kool-Aid of, oh, this is about defending freedom or whatever. And a lot of these these uh, very disillusioned, very uh, cynical veterans who came through my classes after going off to these wars, um, you know, many of them had, had physical uh, handicaps and things caused by their service. Many of them, um, you know, had various types of psychological issues and whatever. And, you know, I didn't ask all of them this question, but a lot of them would, would want to talk to me after class about different things and whatever. And I got the impression that other than, you know, many of them came from families with a lot of military uh, people in their family tree, but I got the impression from talking to many of them that for a lot of them, probably the vast majority, the single biggest influence on them making the decision to join the military other than their own, you know, personal family directly uh, was, was Hollywood mm-hmm. that, you know, this is a huge uh, thing that, that recruits these people. Um, and, you know, the one, uh, and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back to you guys um, if you want to chime in on this, but the one kind of uh, uh, white pill I've seen lately is that U.S. military recruiting is way down mm. and is like they're, they're really, they're having to lower all their standards and they're still not getting enough recruits for what they want to do. Uh, and this is at a time where the American economy is in the crapper in a lot of ways. And usually that makes military recruitment go, go uh, up. So um, and and not only is is recruitment way down in a, in a bad economy, but also something you guys started the film off with Maverick. Right. Maverick is this giant box office smash. But it seems like unlike the first Top Gun movie that hasn't really, um, you know, people are happy to go see it and, you know, maybe believe some of its messaging, but it's not actually translating into any noticeable increase in improvement. But that's sort of like my, my personal, uh, just because I've, I've known so many of the veterans of the recent wars um, and I've seen, you know, what those wars have done to them. And I know that, that Hollywood is such a big part of getting people like that uh, to think that, you know, going off to fight in Afghanistan is a good idea. Yeah, can I jump in there, Tom? I'm sure you've got something to say as well. But let let, let me say a couple of things. One, and perhaps I don't say this enough, I, I am definitely not opposed to the to servicemen um, and women. I think that they're being given a raw deal. It's not really an area that I know uh, that much about. But what I do know is that the military uh, uh, the, the, the the military brass are a different uh, kettle of fish. But then even beyond that, the PR people who are working for the government um, are a different class in themselves. And a really good example of that is that film Fields of Fire, um, which was written by the Undersecretary of uh, Defense, uh, uh, a Vietnam veteran, Jim Webb. um, And it was used at... Uh, military training academies across the United States and was seen as a key text. And so everyone in the military, um, even in the military establishment, wanted that f- uh, film, which was an extremely successful book in every uh, every imaginable way, wanted that book to be made into a film. But it was the PR people who put the kibosh on that. Even the Marines the Marine office wanted that to be made, but it was the central Strubs office in the Pentagon that prevented it from being made because they have got their eye on the bigger goal, 
which is not just about recruitment. Um, it's about ensuring that there's no threat of a good example, uh, no threat of uh, of of history being uh, uh, being presented in a more reasonable fashion when it comes to the application of uh, uh, of imperial violence. That that's where the stopper really lies. I don't, you know, p- people in the military they're they're doing their thing. Um, and even even military brass are, you know, they're they're going to be fine at some time. But you, but you go higher up that level of power, closer to levels of unaccountable power, and closer to the uh, to the um, commercialization, corporatization of power uh, in the form of PR. And the more likely you are to get these these sticking points, these gatekeepers who are going to be, you know operating as the kind of worst of the worst and that seems to me what's what's happened there um tom do you want to add to that well just on it's the the recruitment thing is important as to the effect of top gun maverick we don't actually know that yet i mean it would take at least another six months before we'd even see any numbers kind of filtering through so i have no idea whether that film has been a recruitment success or not um but it isn't just about getting people into the military it's about keeping them there all of these documents don't just say recruitment, they say retention, because they also have a big problem in keeping people beyond their, you know, whatever their initial contract is that they sign. Once that's over, that person can just walk away. And there isn't an awful lot they can do to stop them from walking away. And it turns out an awful lot of people do that because they realize this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't the glamorous, sanitized, heroized image of military life that I saw in a Top Gun movie. This is actually kind of miserable um, and deeply unpleasant and unsettling in certain ways, or just is kind of a you know a shit job. If you spent two and a half years, I don't know, cleaning up after aircraft when you were sold on the idea of being a fighter pilot, I'm not surprised you quit. I'm not surprised you decide there's something better I can do with my life. There's something more interesting and engaging that I can do than than this. It's funny. That's what we've got. Tony Scott saying that, haven't we? In in the documentary where he says he's he's sort of joking about it, but he's like, you know, I've got to apologise to all these poor guys who um, who we've shown a Top Gun to, who think that they're going to be flying all these jets, and they are literally just cleaning stuff um, for 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 year, years on end, scrubbing pipes in an scrubbing aircraft pipes. carrier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In, in, you know, 40 degree heat, well, 40 degrees in an American wouldn't be that hot. But over here, trust me, in Europe, 40 degrees is hot. So, so yeah, it's also about trying to keep people in there. And you have to remember, what what are the places that these films are often seen before we get to see them? They're seen on military channels on aircraft carriers. They're seen in screenings on military bases. They invite military people to the premieres quite often. You know, this is yeah, all I- about the, oh, this is, you know, on top of everything else, you also get to see movies before they've come out. <laughs> and those movies are telling you, stay in the military. Yeah, and that, that's why there's that interesting example of the Kevin Costner film, uh, 13 Days, which is about the Cuban Missile Crisis, where um, I think I'm right in saying the Pentagon, uh, well, they, they, they didn't cooperate on the film. And it was because it was all based on tapes recorded in the White House. And so they, they couldn't claim that they had any um uh disagreement over accuracy the producers were actually doing the right thing there um but, but then uh, as part of that they you know they refused to show this uh uh this uh, military film military based film uh on any of their bases and of course that can have a uh, have a dent in profits as well for uh for these uh for these film productions so 
there are all sorts of little side side benefits um, uh, that that come from working with the military, uh, and and there are there are costs. You are going to lose probably a few hundred grand if you decide to tell them to go stick it, um, and that's what that's what happened in that case. It ended up being a really good film. It was independently sort of successful, but they probably lost out on some. You know that that the, they lost out on a bit of cash there. Um, they happened to do the right thing. We'll end on a movie where the margins were probably quite small in terms of how much overall money you can make. An extra few hundred thousand dollars here from either directly or indirectly. I mean, all of those screenings on military bases and things, they uh, they, they also have a promotional effect. Those yeah. people talk to their friends outside the military and say, oh, yeah, I've already got to see the new Iron Man film. And yeah, yeah, it's like this. And it's like, you've got to go see it as soon as it comes out and all that kind of stuff. It helps with buzz. It helps with social media coverage, all of this sort of thing. Um it has an influence on all of that stuff. And so certainly on a movie like 13 Days, that will have had an impact on the bottom line, without a doubt. Yeah, it's, it's funny to think uh, counterfactually how, uh, what would have happened if they had gone with military support on that film. <laughs> how, how much more cheesy would it have become? Uh, and uh, and how much more money would they have made on that? I think in the end, they must, I can't remember the exact figure. It was something like 30 million or something that they made, which was probably quite successful, for, but, but no big profit. Um, but I wonder what kind of script that the, the military would have actually uh, enforced. Would they have tried to glam it up, to, to ham it up with sort of a, you know, with more instances of daring do? Or do you think they'd have just cut out any of the things that were secret operations like the U-2 plane crashing over Cuba? And um, do you think they'd have just chopped stuff out or do you think they'd have added stuff in? I think they would have cast someone more handsome as Curtis LeMay. Because the guy they cast in that film is, a, is one one pig faced looking guy. <laughs> yeah, or or would they have gone so far as to, as they have so often, completely rewrite and invert the history, uh, and have it so that you know maybe the Kennedy brothers are like wanting to go to nuclear war, and it's actually the military brass who are like, "Hey guys, that'd be bad. You know, don't la- don't launch an invasion of Cuba." Yeah, well, that that wouldn't be that, that sounds outlandish, but but that is completely possible. I mean, uh, I'm just trying to think of the. Uh, it, it's not quite as stark as an example as that, but just because it's a recent film, the asteroid film, don't look up. Um, you know, that was seen as soon as it came out as this great. Um, liberal kind of left wing, uh, uh, you know, challenging corporate power, uh, and and of course, we, you know, I certainly enjoyed watching it, uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, and I thought it was you know well done. But yeah, it, as soon as it came out, myself and Tom looked at the uh, st- uh, stayed w- waiting at the end for the the uh, credits, and we saw that the Department of Defense had been involved. Um, no one was aware of that. No one had mentioned it anywhere uh, in the press. And no one did. I don't. I haven't, still haven't seen any reference to that anywhere. But you know that that's why. Quite interestingly, the uh, that movie "Don't Look Up" doesn't have um, the, the, the military's trying to do the right thing to prevent the asteroid coming down. Um, now, the character who plays the 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 sort of military Yahoo guy is a bit of a is a bit crazy, but he's not. He's not terrible no one's terrible in it and it's the it's the corporate influences um and the political it's the white house uh, with meryl streep as the president it's those people who are the villains of this piece but actually the the military is all bound up in that in the real world in uh, in terms of climate change and so on so 
I well, just, isn't I, the underlying I, message of that movie ultimately? Wouldn't it have been better if the military had just nuked the asteroid? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's not to say that the movie was uh, was bad. Uh, sorry, the cat caught me again, right on the leg, right on the front, <laughs> right, right, right on the shin, right on the shin. I should walk around wearing shorts. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's just an example where of, of one of many thousands of examples of of where the military is just able to declaw without anyone even noticing. Um, uh, just because they've been involved, you know, just on the quiet, and that will have just been a few lines through the script. And of course, we still don't have the we still don't have the, the documentation for that. I imagine that Tom, you'll have put in an application for that already. But that could take a year or two years to come through, or it could take eight and uh, eight over eight years, like the um, like when we asked for the material about uh, uh, when I asked for that material about was it um, Argo, Argo. Yeah. Um, and eventually, and then. Uh, but a few, whatever it was, a year or so ago, we got this uh, a letter that was replying to something that I'd, I'd written in 2012. Very confusing when I opened it up, and it was like emails from Ben Affleck. I thought, well, that's nice of you, Ben. Why are you why have you printed out your emails and sent them to me uh, from uh, eight years ago? And then I realised it was a, an old, very, very old FOI, uh, FOIA um, request that had been finally dealt with by the CIA. So. You know, there are all sorts of levels of institutional um, secrecy, but but also institutional slowness that that means it's it's hard to know exactly what's what's happening on some of the latest the latest products, and that shouldn't be the case. Of the the people that you got to comment on the film, I think probably the you know biggest name was Oliver Stone. So uh, that that was. Yeah, that was really cool and impressive that you you got him to uh, participate. Um, and also, oh, I'm trying to remember, what was it that um, Roger presented him with? Was it the rejection of support? Yeah, it was, was Platoon. It Platoon or yeah. one of his other movies? Yeah, and and it's really telling where, I mean, Oliver Stone, obviously a guy uh, who, you know, is unlikely to ever get ELO support for any of his films and... Uh, certainly hasn't ever so far. One of the few big, you know, Hollywood directors who's actually made uh, some some big war movies and things that you know take a a line that the Pentagon doesn't like. Um, but even for somebody like Oliver Stone and a guy who is, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but a guy who's you know much more uh, open minded to conspiracy theories and things like this than most people in Hollywood, that even Oliver Stone was kind of surprised by some of what you guys um you know presented him with as as far as ha- how these people operate and and how far their reach is it's not not exactly a question i guess but uh you know w- what was it like to to kind of you know i mean first off to to get to work a little bit with oliver stone you know get him to comment uh, for the documentary but also you know what was it like to see that even he was sort of surprised by just how far this stuff goes yeah i mean i think um it, yeah i mean my involvement with that came from I'm trying to remember how it exactly began, but I seem to remember having uh, having lunch in town, I think, and, the, and he uh, and he just sent me an email in response to something that I'd sent to him or to one of his co-workers, you know, years ago. Anyway, he eventually uh, replied and said that he wanted to uh, wanted to be involved, um, and I arranged this interview with him. Uh, but this was at the height of the pandemic, and so. Um, uh, I got as far as Heathrow Airport and <laughs> couldn't actually get to the States in the end, which was a rather crushing moment of my uh, uh, of my uh, research career. Um, 
but yeah, he was, um, he had, he had recommended, I think mine and Tom's book, the, um, was that right? Am I, am I right in saying that he recommended yeah, yeah, the book? mentioned national he, security he, he, cinema he, he in a few places. To, yeah. He recommended it to Louis Theroux, didn't he? Yeah. Um, and, and on one or two of his other interviews that he was doing around the time, cause he was promoting his, um, his autobiography around about 2020, 20 and 2021. Um, and so, yeah, he was in, endorsing our work. Um, and yeah, uh, and then Roger Roger went out um, uh, rather than myself and Roger to interview Oliver uh, in Los Angeles at his home. And yeah, I mean, I think Roger was expecting that Oliver Stone would know some, you know, would know a fair bit about this, uh, you know, Operation Hollywood or whatever you want to call it, um, this propaganda apparatus. Uh, but no, I mean, Oliver Stone was was kind of referring to our book to um as the kind of revelations to to, to roger um I, I think it's just very difficult if you're you know if, some, if you're someone like him you're you're already you know you're only an individual and so unless you've actually done this um this research systematically it is very difficult to 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 know and it's an indication it, it's an indication of how impoverished the field is um of uh, political communication uh, in film it's it's an indication of of that, that's that's why our book sold so well i mean i always thought that was interesting that mine and tom's book in 2017 we had no advertising um we had uh, we we self published because we just couldn't be asked to work with anyone <laughs> we we, um, we we did tom did the front cover himself um, I, I cut, there was just, it was just, it was the most no frills book you could imagine. We may as well have printed it on a, uh, on, on a carton of orange juice. Um, but we put it out and, and because, and there was just this huge thirst for, for it. And so we ended up selling many thousands of, of, of copies in the first, uh, first two or three years. And I think it's an indication that there was nothing out there like that. And so there was nothing even for someone like Oliver Stone to, to, to have been able to latch on to um, uh, over the, over these past few decades. Well, and on top of that, we should add in all of the tens of thousands of people who downloaded it for free, because as soon as that book, the ebook uh, version of National Security Cinema was up, it got cracked and was available on file sharing networks. Oh, you within, never think, told me that. Are you kidding? <laughs> within, within, I think, within, I think, five days. <laughs> oh, thanks. Why haven't you shut, why haven't you shut that down? <laughs> I'm not the NSA. Oh, well, look, ask them, ask them. <laughs> Can't believe and besides, that. I do, I do also I... believe in like books being free. I mean, I download books for oh, free, really? so I can't really complain at other people downloading my, my book for uh... free. So it probably helped, Matt, let's face it, because <laughs> lots of people will have bought the paperback because they couldn't stand reading the shonky PDF cracked version. All right, they got all for right. free. Fine, fine. <laughs> Well, the movie's out now. The movie's out now, and the movie's mm. brilliant. And the movie's up to date. And also, I do think it's important that um, it, w- one of the things that was so unusual about the movie project is that you know usually the research is, is done prior to the to, uh, to the shooting. You know, it's, it's that kind of preparation documentation is done. But Roger was doing two jobs at once here. He was doing his own research project. Um, I think because he felt a little bit, I still think it's just my theory. I think he was a bit jealous of me and Tom doing the, the book in the first place. But at no, the no, same he was. time, he was. that's not a theory, the Matt. Time. He was. 
at the same time, he was also doing uh, a filmmaking project uh, and was de- and and also doing that filmmaking project with really quite uh, you know fairly high quality um, uh, animation and graphics packages and so on. So I think um, Rogers Rogers really brought that. When I say a research, when he was, when I say he was doing a research project at the same time as filmmaking, I mean he was going around to archives. Um, he was uh, acting like a, the professor that he is, um, and he was also doing interviews as well. So it was a really unusual project. I mean, I'm quite surprised that he didn't have a nervous breakdown doing that. I think mm. he's just quite a stable guy, isn't he? And so, um, so, so he was able to handle it. But uh, it, it, the story really is brought up to date. So. It is it is better to watch the film uh, than it is to uh, buy National Security Cinema from 2017, which I understand is easily rip rip offable from the internet anyway these days. <laughs> yeah, I mean I've sent it for free to lots of people. So. <laughs> nice, nice one. <laughs> Was there anything in all the stuff that you got access to, you know, for the first time much more recently? Um, particularly the the Suet archives, was there anything in there? I know a, a lot of it for sure. Uh, simply confirmed and illustrated a lot of suspicions you guys already had about you know what had gone on. But was there anything that you've come across so far in that stuff that was like really uh, surprising or or counterintuitive or or anything like that? I mean, that's all, that's the sort of question people often ask me in these kinds of interviews. And the problem is so much of it, you know, um, we're talking about tens of thousands of pages of material covering every conceivable aspect of this really. So, I mean, like stuff that surprised me, certainly there's a lot that's amused me when I stumbled across, I think it was in the file on Crimson Tide, the 1990s nuclear submarine movie, uh, which got rejected because it's about a mutiny on board of a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine. Um, that when that news got out, the Navy's office actually did an interview with L.A. Times, someone like that, some big L.A. publication. Uh, and as part of the question and answer session, the, the guy actually said, oh, no, we don't ask for script changes. He actually said that, wow. which is astonishing because his name is on documents literally dated weeks earlier where he's asking for script changes. I mean, that's the degree to which they will lie about this. So stuff like that both sort of raises my eyebrows and makes me laugh. Um, I guess in all of this stuff, uh, there is another example that I particularly liked. It's on a movie that was never made called Second to None. This was in the early 90s. The Marine Corps basically commissioned this movie um, because they wanted to show off the Harrier jump jet, which they got to do a couple of years later in True Lies. They were very big on getting the Harrier jump jet into True Lies. They loved that. Um, but they'd commissioned this movie, which is all about the Marine Corps taking on some gang of pirates in Thailand or something like that. The script was originally called Thai Pirates. Um, and one of the scenes that they objected to in this script that they themselves had commissioned uh, was a scene where Marine Corps pilots start dumping human feces um, onto these pirates <laughs> and, and it's like you know from the minds of hollywood from the mind of michael bay or whatever but you know stuff like that where you just think how on earth does this happen 
I mean, firstly, why on earth is the Marine Corps commissioning their own movie in Hollywood? Secondly, why are they then complaining about a script that they asked someone else to write? I mean, did they just pick the wrong, wrong screenwriter or something? And then it turns out the movie was never made in the end because it started to run into a few financial troubles and then the Gulf War kicked off and the military basically turned around and said, oh, no, no, we're too busy fighting this war now. We can't make this movie anymore. And it's, it's just like the whole thing is kind of a, a dark farce. You know, it's weird that the military would be there in Hollywood commissioning this movie script and then complaining about the thing that they themselves had created and then not making it because they were too busy doing the thing that they're actually supposed to be doing, even though that thing is awful, you know? Sounds like a combination of... uh... Sounds like uh, Argo meets Tropic Thunder, but for real. It's it's like a Coen Brothers movie or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, one thing that definitely surprised me, and, you know, I had already... I think you guys had mentioned it a little bit in... um, national security cinema. And I know I've heard uh, Tom talk about it on his podcast, but the, the degree to which when they get involved in television, it's not just the things you would expect, like, you know, TV series that depict the military or depict the CIA as like the centerpiece of, of the the show or, um, you know, the kind of weapons porn quote unquote documentaries that like history channel used to run all the time or whatever. Um, but it's even these these sort of silly things where they'll get involved with like some random reality show that seems to have nothing to do with the military or the CIA or whatever. Um, and as as the the film, you know, one of the, one of the things that cracked me up is like, what the hell is it with these people in cake shows? Like, what, what made them decide that cake shows are a great venue to to propagandize people for? Well, the whole cake obsession goes back. Apps. I mean, that goes back to the days of Don Baruch. One of the things that Roger found in the in the Baruch archive in Don Baruch's files were all these pictures of the office back in the fifties and sixties when you know Baruch was kind of at the heyday of making war films. Um, and they kept there's loads and loads of pictures of them eating cake. Absolutely tons of. I don't know why this is. I don't know why those pictures were kept in the archives either. But obviously they're they're amusing. Um, so I think cake is a psychological fixation for entertainment liaison officers um there is something to that but it is more seriously it's it's about reaching audiences that you wouldn't otherwise reach i mean who the audience for a transformers film and the audience for top chef or cake boss are very different there isn't a huge amount of overlap if you want to reach all of those people and recruit them all either as actual recruits in terms of service members or as as they call them advocates i.e people who believe the shock that they're selling them uh, then you have to try and reach all of them, which means you have to try and work on everything from Iron Man to Operation Christmas Drop. Um, you know, so so that's why they're involved increasingly in reality TVs because it's a whole uh, like audience demographic that they don't reach through the conventional stuff. Um, I mean, women are a big part of that, but it's not just about that. It's about like how do you turn the perhaps the parents of someone who was in the military and they were skeptical about them joining but then they start watching their favorite reality shows and they're full of all of this pro-military messaging and all of these nice scenes depicting military life in you know quite a fun sunshiny way they're going to feel a bit better about that they're perhaps not going to continue having those difficult conversations with their kid about you know i'm not happy with you signing up i mean are you going to leave after your two-year stint is done or whatever if those conversations go away that helps retention you see the whole thing all feeds into one another it's a mass psychological manipulation exercise on a global scale essentially 
Yeah. You know what that makes me think about um, when I teach um, my U S history courses at my day job and I cover world war two, uh, I do get heavily into the various propaganda cranked out during World War II and, and World War I, for that matter. Um, and I show students clips, I, I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen these, of some of the propaganda cartoons put out during World War II for children, right? The, the Looney Tunes and so forth. And, you know, I, I ask them, why, why would you bother creating propaganda for five-year-olds? During World War II, like no, no one thought that the war would still be going in 13 years when those five-year-olds were, were old enough to go join the military. Like what's going on? Um, and then I, I kind of throw out there, um, if none of them, you know, suggests it as a possibility. Well, you know, a five-year-old in 1943 is unlikely to ever serve in World War II, uh, but, but he might have an older brother, a father, whatever, who's serving in World War II. And like, let's say he's on a B-29 crew uh, firebombing Japanese civilians. Well, you know, when your your father or your older brother or whatever comes home from the war, uh, you might ask uncomfortable questions like, hey, when you dropped firebombs on those civilians, like, did you yeah. burn children to death or whatever? And, uh, you know, if instead you've been given like uh, Looney Tunes cartoons that dehumanize the Japanese or whatever the case may be, then you're much less Bugs likely Bunny to ask says, those questions. Don't ask about the firebombs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're just going to, oh, you're, you're, you know, firebombing those, those little Jap monsters. Right. Um, aside from which then, you know, that kid may eventually be old enough to fight in Korea or Vietnam. So I guess there's that. There is that. There is. I mean, these days they're going even younger than that. There was something I came across in the most recent batch of Navy documents where they were working with a YouTube based show that's aimed at toddlers, literally two to three year olds. Wow. That's like that's a slap in the face. You want to talk about stuff that surprises you when you read through these documents. That was one that took me aback a little I, like, I knew they, that, that YouTube had started to be militarized about maybe about 10 years ago. They first really started engaging with YouTube. But that's like toddlers shouldn't even be having to think about that kind of stuff. And they're not. Let's face it. If they were left alone to their own devices, they'd be thinking about eating mud and chasing snails <laughs> and stuff. That's, that's all two to three year olds are really concerned with. They should not be getting militarized messaging in their goddamn YouTube show. They just shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, that's insane. Um, one more thing I, I wanted to ask about that uh, theaters of war didn't get into, but I'm just curious as somebody observing it in recent years is kind of any thoughts or, or anything that you've come across uh, in, in documents or whatever about the, the recent turn in recent years of military and the CIA increasingly incorporating, for lack of a better term, uh, woke messaging and imagery into their PR, because when you look at even the, the direct PR of those institutions, like not the stuff they're doing, you know, they're laundering through Hollywood. But, you know, if you look at militaries, the military's official social media accounts, things like that, you know, there was that kind of famous, uh, the United States military Twitter tweeted some woke tweets at the start of Pride Month. And um, there was the famous a year or two ago, whenever it was humans of CIA videos that are, you know, um, where they, they have various CIA employees who check enough diversity boxes talking about how woke and whatever the CIA is as a, as a place to work. Um, what's going on there? Is it, is it really just as simple as um, 
cynically trying to kind of, you know, pink wash and black wash and rainbow wash or whatever it is uh, and, and, you know, deflect criticism or is, is there, is there more going on behind that? I think the answer to that is yes, there is more to it than simply, I mean, everyone at the start of pride month who is on social media starts posting rainbows for some reason, everyone took down the Ukraine flag and just started hung up fucking rainbow flag in its place. Um, that's a standard thing that happens pretty much every year now. I don't know if we should read too much into the military and CIA jumping on that sort of bandwagon because it's just social media stuff anyway. Um, but yeah, there is a, it's not just about trying to pink wash or rainbow wash fairly bigoted, um, marginalizing institutions. It is about that. It's also about reaching recruitment potential in demographics they would otherwise struggle to reach, partly because they are such bigoted institutions. Um, And again, it's about trying to reach people as advocates. It's about trying to change hearts and minds. You know full well the CIA isn't actually interested in recruiting working class blacks from Baltimore, right? Because those kids don't have the education that's required for the CIA to do the things the CIA need them to do. I mean, except in a few certain circumstances. Um, but what they don't want is that kid seeing them with hostility, with going on about how the CIA were behind the crack epidemic and so on and so forth. And so they will stick a bunch of, I guess, friendly faces into these products and they will support products that are have a tendency to do that sort of thing. And they will even be going on their own completely ad hoc unofficial promotional effort around Black Panther um, in order to change hearts and minds because they know there's a lot of people in these various demographics who don't like them so it's not just about like I said there's something beyond like pink washing um, it's not just about sort of saying oh we're gay friendly it's about trying to get people who would otherwise be skeptical or hostile towards you to think of you in a fundamentally different way or at the very least just take the edge off take that hostility away if they're not actively militating against you that's a win for them if people just become apathetic towards the cia as just another part of the government that's a win for them let alone so if, i think it's about that too let alone if they can convince you to see them as to use their own terminology a quote-unquote ally for sure for sure but it's also about i mean Foucault wrote about this. One of the problems with people who have been pushed to the fringes, pushed to the margins, is that they often seek validation from the very system that's done that to them, from the very categories in the system of values that's done that to them. Is that not what Hollywood is actually kind of facilitating now? Is that it's saying, like there was a cartoon uh, that came out on Netflix last year, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was last year, last summer which is all about a bunch of gay and trans and what have you characters who work for the CIA and they are marginalized and not taken seriously. And the whole plot, the whole like uh, em- emotional arc of the series is about them b- being taken seriously, wanting to be taken seriously by the CIA. You see what I mean? They're judging themselves by the very organization that's abused them. Right. And they right. want, they're seeking validation from their own abuser. And that's, <laughs> I mean, actually a fairly common thing, I guess, in this world for people to do, but it's certainly something Hollywood has instrumentalized and these organizations have then weaponized as a tool for messing with 
these people's heads and making them feel like, yeah, yeah, we've treated you badly, but you should still worship us and you should still want us, you know, you should still want us to see you as a good person, as a valid person. And in fact, we're the authority you're supposed to be looking up to, even as we slap you around the face. Um, and if you can get people to that point, I mean, Jesus, that's, it's horrifying, but it's in- astonishingly effective. I, I would add to that um, to say that, uh, and I don't know whether you'd class this under the kind of woke spinning or woke politics or whatever, but if, if you go back, say, 15, 20 years about the um, recruitment of, uh, of women in the CIA, um, and that's when I think they realised that they had quite a problem of, of lack of diversity and therefore lack of s- skills in, um, in the Central Intelligence Agency. And so that's when they uh, recruited Jennifer Garner, for example, to do um, to do um, unpaid adverts. So she was she was married at the time to Ben Affleck, and uh, and then she became the character Sydney on um, uh, on the long running TV series Alias, which then you know kind of inspired, I guess, um, uh, Car- Carrie's character in Homeland. Uh, and so that lots of these uh, um, instead of having uh, just old you know old blokes doing it uh roger moore types which would have been in the uh any time up to the uh sort of 80s or even 90s uh that that started to change around that point the other the other thing i would also mention is um uh i think that there's a broader thing going on if you, if you look at the war in ukraine i did an article a couple of months ago um just near the start of the the war which was called liberal derangement and u.s foreign policy and i do think uh, this isn't directly tied to to Hollywood, but I do think that there is um, that that these these narratives about um, uh, uh, about a kind of the, the sort of hyper liberal world order um, uh, do play into these ideas of uh, of sort of uh, wokeism, and that's what the establishment is kind of um, you know sort of militarized establishment is is utilizing that. But I haven't seen. I, I don't know so much about the uh, the specifics of how that's been weaponized from from Hollywood over the last uh, two or three years. But um, but Tom's pointed to some of that. Yeah, it seems like it might be useful if there's people who uh, wouldn't be amenable to a, a war, let's say, against a Middle Eastern country to take natural resources. But what if you could convince them that such a war is actually really about trying to protect, you know, fill in the blank, gay rights or whatever. Uh, yeah, in that exactly. I mean, there the, the, the was a point um, uh, just a couple of years ago where, you know, the head of the CIA and um, the head of um, uh, uh, various different arms companies were, were all female. And so that creates this this impression that there is something progressive inherently about authority, authority structures in the West. And of course, then you've kind of got this classic uh, kind of. Um, uh, stale, pale male um, Vladimir Putin, who's this kind of uh, dark-looking creature um, in uh, in the in the Kremlin, a kind of representative of the kind of old world. You know, he's he's, he's stuck somewhere in about 1981 on gay rights, um, and uh, you know, the, the, and he's kind of got a younger mistress, and it's all shrouded in mystery, and he's still he's still emphasising his nuclear weapons. You know, we don't even talk about our nuclear weapons anymore because they're like, no, no, that's that's a bit that's a bit dirty, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but so 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 it's, it's like the this clash between east and west. Which is currently embodied in the uh, currently manifesting in uh, in Ukraine, but could well 
become something bigger in uh, the South China Sea as well. But this clash between East and West is between uh, kind of these enlightened, liberal, uh, diverse values, all of which are promoted directly or indirectly by by Hollywood and the you know this this lovely light entertainment scene, uh, and these kind of dark, backward, primitive, uh, uh, primitive peoples who are still kind of you know a, a, a part of that kind of shady world, this sort of Orientalist world. I mean, I, I'm saying that obviously skeptically and ironically because it's a load of nonsense really but you know that those kind of narrative threads are are a constant part of the way that our societies our global societies are set up and and it's it's those narrative threads are the kind of you know the 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 streams that that lead into the ideological rivers that mean that we the, the the planet is so divided so and Hollywood is not helping with that. None of the none of the media systems are helping with that, apart from TikTok. And you should check out my TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, it's it's been great talking to you, uh, Matt. Tom, I uh, appreciate your time. I very much appreciate the film. Um, I I heartily recommend it. Um, I would, I would love to see it get as wide of a of a viewership as possible. Um, anything else that uh, either of you would like to throw in any anything we didn't mention that uh, you'd like to mention about the film or anything you want to plug? Please, can I say one thing? I don't want to plug anything. Uh, I want to I want to mention don't extradite Assange. Please go to any website to do with don't extradite Julian Assange, because that's important. Um, and that's coming up um as a, as a possibility uh, for the head of WikiLeaks, the founder of WikiLeaks to be completely screwed over by basically tyrannical systems. On the 8th of October, we're going to be holding hands around the, uh, around the British Parliament as a form of protest against that. Um, please do join in that in, in any way you can. Sure, absolutely. I, I, I would second anybody doing anything they can on that front, for sure. Well, and just to tie it all together, uh, in terms of the last point you made, I mean, yeah, I totally agree. What on earth is he even being extradited for? Um, that whole situation is clearly such an insane attack on critical, sceptical media. But mm. remember, back in the day, WikiLeaks published a CIA memo where they were talking about rebranding the war in Afghanistan as a war for women's rights. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was over a decade ago. How do you think yeah. women's rights are in Afghanistan right now? <laughs> better, better or worse? Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, I, and also bear in mind that you know this—that was an, that, that the WikiLeaks issue is something that was made into several Hollywood movies, all of which were pretty disgraceful in terms of the way that they smeared um, uh, smeared Assange himself. Um, just to clarify to any listeners who aren't aware, he's, he's currently in uh, Belmarsh Prison, which is the highest security prison in Britain, um, and is threatened with extradition to the United States, where he would—I can't remember the name of the prison now—but it would be. Uh, it would be maximum security for 175 years. Uh, and this is all based purely on the US government's case um, uh, against him for the 2010 um, documentation leaks, which were all about war crimes, not even about the Hillary Clinton leaked emails. They've abandoned bothering to do anything about that. Nothing to do with any sexual case, which is a load of nonsense anyway, uh, that they've long since dropped. Um, and it is an assault on media freedom, uh, but also an assault on an, on an innocent individual and a family. Um, there's a new movie that's actually come out because you can still sometimes get 
um, independent films made uh, that go through independent channels. Uh, it's called Ithaca, uh, Ithaca, and it stars um, Julian's wife, who's absolutely brilliant, and his father. Um, and it follows their journey over the last three or four years. Um, it's, it's worth watching, and you'll 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 get a lot out of that film. I hasten to, I, I hasten to say that it cannot really be called entertainment, but it, I think you'll find it a very uh, uh, I think you'll get a lot out of it uh, emotionally and in terms of uh, knowledge if you go and watch Ithaca, which is around in independent cinemas throughout the United Kingdom at the moment, and I think elsewhere. But um, yeah, see where you can see it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that one. Well, um, anyway, it's been great talking to you, Matt. Great talking to you, Tom. Um, again, thanks very much for your time and uh, for the many years of work you both have, you know, been doing and are continuing to do on uh, this this very important topic. All right, and I just want to say thanks again to Matt and Tom for their time and for their all of their work, really, not just on this film, but all the work the two of them have done in researching and exposing this propagandistic, unholy relationship between the Pentagon, CIA, FBI, etc., and big entertainment productions. And again, I would ask that if you like my work and want to help support it and help me ramp it up to new levels, please now more than ever consider either kicking into the Indiegogo while it's still up and running and or signing up for monthly contributions. And, you know, I'm going to be able to do more than I was able to before of things just for supporters of the show, like special bonus episodes, et cetera, like that. So um, all the more reason, aside from just you want to help me out personally and bring down my level of terror and uh, apprehension slightly, because to say that it, I'm a mixed bag, including a lot of anxiety right now is uh, quite an understatement. But anyway, thank you for listening. And again, please go watch Theaters of War. Uh, it's a great documentary film about all this stuff we've been talking about. And it's very much worth watching. It's also a very good one to share if you've got someone who's completely, you know, clueless about this relationship and how much of what comes out of, you know, big entertainment uh, company studios is actually state influenced or even controlled propaganda. So take care and I'll talk to you all soon.